The IPO window can be narrow. Be ready when it opens. Think timing is everything? Look again. Readiness is vital. Deloitte's audit and IPO readiness services can help companies prepare for IPO and exit opportunities. For example, a Deloitte audit is an opportunity for insight, one that can help leaders see further and deeper into their businesses and can help inform vital decisions. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E dot com forward slash US forward slash E-G-C. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Jim McCann, founder and CEO of 1-800-Flowers.com. Jim has revolutionized the floral industry, turning a single flower shop on Manhattan's Upper East Side and turning it into a multi-billion dollar omni-channel retailer and one of the world's largest gourmet food and floral gift providers. It was Jim's belief in the universal need for social connections and interaction that led to his founding of 1-800-Flowers.com. And today, as a highly successful entrepreneur, philanthropist, public speaker, published author, Jim's passion remains the same, to help people create better and more meaningful relationships. Jim has long embraced new technologies long before other retailers. His strategy for growth has included an effective combination of birthing and acquiring new businesses that resonate with the customers, gifting, and celebratory occasions. The company's offerings include such iconic brands as Harry and David, Cheryl's Cookies, The Popcorn Factory, among others. Jim is also deeply involved in philanthropy and especially devoted to helping individuals with developmental disabilities. This includes Jim's continued work as founder and chairman of Smile Farms, Inc., a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that provides meaningful work and opportunities for people with disabilities. And with that, let's welcome my friend, somebody I met a long time ago. Jim, let's welcome you, Jim. Hi, Jim. How are you? Can we go back to the early days, the aha moment? And can we talk a little bit about how you got in the flower business and how you ended up building a multi-billion dollar flower company? Back in, you know, it was 100 years ago, I I was hanging out with my two friends, Fred and Bonnie Flintstone. And uh, (laughs) we were coming home from school and I said, these guys are going to need a florist. Truth be told, I, I thought I'd have a different career. I thought I'd be a New York City policeman. Because where I grew up, that was really aspirational. And the people I most admired in the community where I grew up in were civil servants, or, or a good many of them were. My dad was a small businessman. He ran a, a painting contracting business. And so as I looked around the neighborhood, I, I thought the people who I most admired were policemen or, or in the police department in one way or another. And I thought that's what I'd be. So I went to a college called John Jay College of Criminal Justice, part of the City University of New York here in New York. But along the way, I I started working in the social services. A buddy of mine ran a group home for teenage boys, not far, well, maybe a a million miles from where your family, your husband's family is from in Breezy Point, Queens. We were in Far Rockaway, the other end of that peninsula, and and about a million miles away in terms of attitude. I was working as a bartender in Queens, and my buddy would come in and talk about his work running this group home. And I, I just always asked him a lot of questions about it. And he said, Gee, he said, you seem like you might have an interest in this kind of work. Is it something you'd like to give a try? So I said, maybe. He said, well, then he invited me to dinner. 
down at the group home. And so I went down the next week and had dinner with him at the group home. And afterwards, he, it was a two-story house with a, a finished basement underneath in a very, very tough neighborhood. And he invited me down to his office in the, in the basement level after dinner. And he said, what do you think? I said, yeah, I think maybe someday I'd like to give this a try. So he flipped me the keys and said, well, you got to do me a solid because I got nobody to work tonight and you're on. And that started a career that lasted for 14 years, Alexa. And it was it was a, a great, great learning opportunity, grow up opportunity for me. I did quickly learn that working in the not for profit social work world, uh, you don't make a, very much money. And the decisions we make in life certainly uh, influence our risk taking tolerance and the choices we have. And I married very young. We started a family very young. And so I was always doing things on the side to supplement my income. And one of them was back to bartending on Friday and Saturday nights in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. And there again, a customer who was a terrific guy would stay late on a Saturday night and we'd, we'd chat a bit while I was working behind the bar. And he told me he owned a flower shop across the street and he was going to be selling it. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I have this new business idea I'm going to pursue. And I said, how much are you asking for that flower shop? And he said, $10,000. This is in 1976. Wow. And I had just sold a building I had bought in Brooklyn and fixed up and sold. And I had a $10,000 profit. And I thought it was a sign from God <laughs> that, that I should buy that flower shop. And indeed, I did. And that's how I got started in the, in the flower business, by buying that, that one shop on the Upper East Side. But, Alexa, yes, I wanted to become a florist. But I also wanted to build a business. So I made up my mind that I wasn't just going to do one shop. And so six months later, I opened a second shop. And every six months, I'd open another shop. And then it was every three or four months, I'd open a shop. And then I had a whole lot of shops and realized there is no synergy in having a lot of shops. And so I figured, I got I to gotta figure out another way to grow this business. Walk us through like the building blocks, the chapters of the business, Jim, and how you thought about it. You don't have to be creative, but you have to be curious and you have to recognize a good idea when you see it. So someone else had the idea that hey, maybe we'll build a business around an 800 number that spells out flowers. The good news is uh, we were there fulfilling florists for the New York area. The bad news was they were only around for a few months when they crashed and burned. So I, I said, well, that's a great idea. There's got to be reasons why it didn't work and maybe I could fix those. And so I wound up buying the company, what was left of it anyway, uh, that had the telephone number. So we, as we think about our business journey, we think about it in, as you say, chapters, or we call it waves. At first for us was retail stores and a lot of them. Then the next wave was let's, let's rename our company a phone number. So we were the first company whose name was its phone number. That company went away. We we took what was left of its intellectual property, the, the telephone number, and changed the name of our company from Flora Plenty to 1-800-Flowers. Well, first it was 800-Flowers, and people didn't get it, that it was a phone number. So we had to add the one so they could get it. <laughs> and so that was our second wave. And, and in the next five years, we became a national brand. I owned all those flower shops. So I, what I did was I sold them off to franchisees because I needed the capital to grow this bigger idea. And these shops were better owned and operated by family businesses anyway. And so that gave me the capital to go ahead. I wasn't smart enough or, or knowledgeable enough to know about financing and private equity and venture capital. I didn't know any of that. And frankly, there wasn't a lot of that around back then. So we just sort of bootstrapped it 
And if we were able to revolutionize the sleepy little flower business just by inventing a, a name of our company that spelled out its number and answering the phone 24 hours a day and using credit cards over the phone, which was not the norm then, we thought, geez, the next technology that's going to come along could disrupt us. And so we always had our antenna up looking for what's next. And I have a younger brother, 10 years my junior, uh, who had just come into the business after graduating from uh, college. And he was curious about all the new technologies. And so we tracked over 50 different technologies that we tested into wow. to see if that's going to be the next one. And the one we kept coming back to was this online world. And we developed some friends and relationships who really did understand that world. And we hitched our wagon to their star. And they were the guys who were running AOL at that time. We were the first merchant of any kind that was able to transact on AOL. Wow. So we were early to the online world. And back then it was the walled gardens. And then we had our own website, but no one could find you. So it didn't matter. And then in 1995, Netscape came along, organized the world with a browser. And then it really began to matter. There was a recession in 2008. And we're looking and saying, wow, this is threatening us too, to make sure we stayed profitable throughout that time. We didn't cut the rebuild of our tech platform. We didn't cut our investment in social. And we didn't cut our investment in mobile. And boy, that mattered. So that was the fourth way for us. Everything social and mobile, and they aided and abetted each other. And now we're in the fifth or maybe sixth wave because with the explosion of these tools, these AI tools, it's bigger and better than ever. And it's completely disruptive. But we think this next wave will be the most exciting of them all. What do you think about this AI wave? What are your predictions? What are you seeing? It just shows me that the things we've dreamt about, Alexa, doing here at Flowers is now imaginable and frankly within reach using AI tools. The ways, we, the ways we want to help our customers to have more and better relationships, the ways that we want to interact with them to incite them, incent them to invest in those relationships in their life. Now we can deliver to our community tools to help them do just that. Now I can have an AI generate an engine know that I want to invest in my relationship with, with you guys, know what your interests are, know that I have a friend who, who commented on that, serve up that article to me and suggest that I send that link to you. If I say these are the relationships I want to invest in, and now it pings me 30 days into the new year on January 30th and says, you haven't done anything about investing in your relationship with Alexa yet. Here's a couple of suggestions. Let me remind you, now we have tools to help us follow through on those important resolutions we make at the beginning of the year. Any other intangibles that you can kind of talk about of like why you feel this is going to be such a sea change? Mostly it's my learning through interactivity with smart people like you, Dave Morgan and Adam Quinn from Simul Media. Dave has been really dunking his head, as Adam has as well, everything about AI. And he just came back from a visit to the Ukraine visiting with their AI talent there in Kiev. And he said something to me that, frankly, has had me rattled since. He said, in very short time, I don't know that, what that is, but he said in a very short order, apps go away, websites go away, and searches we know it goes away. Well, if that's true, what takes its place? 
I'm in a, a, a mad dash search to find out if smart people I know and trust tell me that's what's going to happen. I have to figure out what's going to take its place really quickly so that we're relevant, meaningful, and accessible to our community of customers so that we're here to help them to have more and better relationships and to act conveniently on their thoughtfulness. If we look back um, at 1-800-Flowers, I'm sure there were many hard moments. In fact, I know there were many, many hard moments. Can we talk through one of the hardest moments that you got through and what you learned that you could pay forward to this entire audience that's listening? One that was hardest on my brother and I emotionally was that 2008 timeframe. We didn't know how long that recession was going to last, but we had a board meeting in the beginning of December of 08, and we gave a forecast for what the rest of the, the Christmas is a very important season for us on the flower side of the business, yes, but especially on our food gift side of the business, where we have Harry and David uh, and our chocolate companies, uh, Simply Chocolate and Cheryl's Cookies and the Popcorn Factory and Personalization Mall. So all the other wonderful gift brands we have. And then uh, the day after our board meeting, I think it was December 4th, business just changed in the wrong direction, like the next day. So we had to do our first ever layoffs. And we laid off 10% of our team, which was at that time about 300 people. And that was painful. We had never done that in all our years being in business that we've had to do layoffs. And it was painful to do, but the lesson we learned is, is to make sure we were honest and direct with everyone and telling them why and how we made our decisions. And then what I did was I asked the lady who ran HR for us to build a team of people that everyone was had to be laid off, that they knew that our interest was to help them to secure another job. So we're, we're all active in the business community and we know people are looking for different talent. And we set up a, a team of three people whose job it is to work with the people who were laid off if they wanted, we would give them assistance to help them find another job. And we stuck with that for a year and a half, almost two years. And then there were about five or 10 people that we lost touch with. And, but we, we worked through till every other person got placed. And I run into people as recently as last week uh, that were people who were, uh, that we had to let go during that time who expressed their appreciation for the fact that even though it was a tough time for all of us, that we hung in there and did the right thing by them and helped them to secure another job. Many of them have come back to us <laughs> in later years to work for us again. Another lesson I learned was from a friend of mine named Dave Bonagora, ran Ernst & Young on Long Island, now EY. Dave and his partners taught me a lesson, which was before working with them, if you left me, you were dead to me. I didn't want to talk to you. I didn't want to know you. It was a personal abandonment. And then working with EY and, uh, and working with uh, Michael Bloomberg at Bloomberg, they each taught me the lesson that people are going to leave. That's okay. If they do it in the right way, give plenty of notice, handle themselves professionally, hand off their work well, and say, say and do the right things, then they would consider them in their alumni community and they'd be deliberate about staying connected with them. So they changed my mind and they changed my practice and my maturity to go their way. But if you leave bad, you're dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Jim, I want to transition a little bit. If you think back to your parents and maybe something in your childhood, something that really stands out that you maybe even repeated with your own children, is there any, anything that you would pay forward? 
we grew up in South Queens, not a vibrant neighborhood, uh, blue collar neighborhood, good people. And we had a little uh, grocery store around the corner from us. Some would call it a deli, but they didn't really like have uh, deli meats or anything. It was just a little grocery store. Everybody was on credit in that grocery store. He had the book. I'm the oldest of five, as I mentioned. Chris, my uh, brother, 10 years, my junior youngest. Al was the fellow who was the grocery storekeeper. And he'd take out a brown paper bag and he'd have your can of corn and he'd have your paper towels and, and he'd write with a flourish on the bag, draw the line and add it up and then put you in the book. Tell you if you're over your credit limit or not. Particularly my sisters and I, we'd play store all the time. And we'd take things out of the closet. We'd imitate Al and we'd write on the, there was no editing machine. <laughs> there was no cash register. He just wrote it on the brown paper bag. And we're lucky enough, we have a summer house out east on Long Island. And we have seven grandkids now, Alexa. Uh, we have this one room that used to have a pool table into it until I had grandkids. Pool table's gone now and it's filled with all kinds of toys and plastic cars and things like that. And to see my grandkids setting up shop to open the store <laughs> in the playroom that we had to go spend real money in, uh, I, it just reminded me, the things you do as a little kid really do matter in life in terms of how you see yourself and what you learn. And, and so to see the next generation, not my kids who used to do it, but now their kids playing store, makes you realize you're learning all kinds of lessons at a very young age. What have you learned in the tenure of your career about, and again, you know, having grown this business for 47 years, which is wild, Jim, think about that, 47 years. What have you learned about managing stress? You're assuming I've learned things. <laughs> I am assuming you've learned, Jim, 47 years of doing the same thing means you've learned something. Well, a, a couple of things come to mind there. One is I'm still old fashioned. Uh, I do a lot of things with pen in hand and a pad. And it's good to have a couple of few people that you can go talk to who you catch attitude from. And uh, I mentioned Bob Diamond before. You know, Bob's run global banks and, and all different kinds of financial institutions globally, as I say. And he's a good friend and someone like him on a Friday night, this past Friday night, the phone rings. It's 530. I'm getting ready to leave the office. And uh, we have a 30-minute chat and talk about things that are fresh on. So to have four, five, six, ten people in your life that you can have candid conversations with who've been there and done that is a lifesaver. And the other thing is, if something's bothering me, I take out a pen and I take out a pad and I write four boxes and I write down what the issues are, what the opportunities are, and somehow graphically by writing and analyzing and taking the emotions out of it is I find the best way for me to cope with it and come to a conclusion. And then it's how do you tell yourself the story? What is the situation today? Where do you want the situation to get to? And if you can create the narrative, everyone else around you is much more likely to go along, even if they don't understand it, which likely they won't, because you don't want to share everything and burden them. But if they just have the confidence that you see a way to get to the other side, they're much more likely to relax and do their job, which will make it much more likely that you'll get to the desired outcome. If you think about the skill sets of an entrepreneur CEO, and again, you are at the helm of an organization with thousands of employees, you've been through so much. What are the skill sets that are the most important? The one that has meant the most to me in my two professional careers after knock around kinds of things. First, as I mentioned, was in the social services. 
running a home for a group home for boys and then all the group homes and becoming the administrator of that home. What I learned there are the same things I try and do at work today. And that is help people who work for us to have goals, uh, set goals for them with them, measure their performance along the way, try and make it fun, post a reward at the end. And it might not be something tangible. It might just be something goofy and fun. And then keep score along the way. My job back running a home with 10 teenage boys in it who were tough kids who came from tough circumstances is the same as it is today. Only now I have people with wonderful degrees from wonderful universities and graduate schools around the country. But the job is the same to help structure an environment where we have goals and those people can accomplish more than they ever thought they could on their own. Now, today, some of the people we have have full expectation that they can do anything. But the most exciting thing is to see somebody who doesn't have the credentials, who's been here maybe 20 years, working with a couple of those really brainiac newbies and see them flourish and rise and become the leaders of that project. So for me, it's organizing people to have a common set of goals, have their individual goals within that, and to encourage them and root for them and cheer for them to help them to get to their goals. Because if they do, we do. You have this great piece of advice. You said the best thing that you can do is fire yourself. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't claim credit for it. It was a, a fellow I met, you know, years ago, I was asked to give a talk someplace. And I think the fellow's name was Stan Gerber. And he had written a book. And he and I had uh, had a chance uh, to sit after we had both uh, done our presentations that night. And he was, we were chatting and he said, the best advice I've ever given, and he gave me exactly that advice, was fire yourself. And I, I thought back about when I was operating the shops. And let's take the first shop. I was the best floor sweeper, the best designer, the best flower cleaner, the best salesperson, the best delivery guy. I thought I was best at everything. And maybe I was because no one was more enthusiastic than me. But then I realized that, that I'm doing myself and my business a disservice if I continue along that path. Because if I can hire someone else who's a better delivery, who's a good delivery person, then that leaves me more time to do things that only I can do. And if I get someone else who's good enough at flower cleaning after they come in from the market and preparing them and hydrating them, then that frees me up to do things that only I can do in terms of sales, business development, expansion. So if I spend all my time doing things that other people could do well enough then I'm denying my business the horsepower, the opportunity for growth, because I'm doing things that other people could do and not doing the things that no one else can do. I'm going to move to the quick fire round, Jim. I'm going to ask a question. First thing that comes to your mind, what is a book that you want everyone to read because it's changed your life? Cynthia Covey-Heller. So Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Effective Leaders, uh, her father. And she wrote a book which is meaningful, has, has been very meaningful to me, and I've had dozens of conversations with friends about it in the last six months. And she's a wonderful lady. And I got to interview her on my podcast. And the book is called Living Life in Crescendo. Her counsel was especially, I, I, I took it especially for someone at my end of the, of the, the life spectrum, which is some people can say, I'm going to live my life in diminuendo, which is da, 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 da. Or they could say, I still have my health. I have my curiosity, I have my interest, and I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to go hard, as hard as I can, as long as I can. 
What is your favorite question to ask somebody when you're interviewing them, Jim, to figure out if they're the sort of person you want to work with? Well, at the end of the uh, process of looking at people and looking at their resumes and, and speaking with them and getting to know them, what my brother and I would often say to one another was, geez, I wonder what we'll think about them if we hire them a year from now. So I asked them, what are we saying about you? What didn't we know about you? What surprised us about you? Do you have a sense of humor, don't you? Are you a hard worker? Are you creative? Are you fun to be around? Are you creative to the culture? What are we going to be saying? And it's amazing what comes out. What is a quote that you live by? A quote or a mantra or some sort of saying that just really means something to you? There's a a famous consultant, business consultant, business guru named Peter Drucker. And he said, and I almost say this every day, that which is measured improves and that which is not measured deteriorates. And every day I, I see evidence that that's true. If you keep score and you measure things, people want to do a good job. And if you give them the tools and you, this is how we're keeping score, they're going to work hard to make sure they're moving that needle. But if you're not measuring it, nobody's really in charge. Guess what? You're going to come back in six months and nothing's happened. What is your biggest pinch me moment to date in your career? I think it's more of a, a feeling, which is I'm surprised that it's not more universal. Look, I know I, I didn't have a business education. I had a good education, but not a business education. And it wasn't just in the classroom. And I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room or in the world, for sure. But I'm not the least bit intimidated to be around really smart people. In fact, I go out of my way to put myself in situations where I'm around really smart people. Because I, either I'm stupid enough or have enough ego strength, I don't know what it is, to know that I can be better and I can learn faster and I can mimic the things that really small people do, even if I'm not as smart as them. And so I, I just am always startled and struck by people who are intimidated to be around people who are clearly very smart. And for some reason, I look for it and I, I really go out of my way to spend time with people like you, Alexa, who are really smart, really well-educated, because I know I can learn something from you. Last question. Um, what do you hold as sacred, right? 47 years, you're the longest tenured entrepreneur that I've ever had on this podcast. And clearly you built something that, as I said, I think it's undeniable that every person in America should know about it. So for that one person that you met that didn't know about 1-800-Flowers, uh, <laughs> shame on them. What do you hold as sacred? When you think about building a business, what's sacred? People say, oh, you you could have a a downturn, you can go broke. I think we've been broke several times in our business in the early days, but we never gave up. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I I genuinely don't know because, you know, we have things like bankruptcy laws in this country that enable businesses to survive, even though they go through a tough time because the idea is good enough. And yes, the equity gets wiped out and people come in. But I think the thing that has been key to my success is that we don't we never stop moving forward. And even if it looks very tough, I remember in the very early years, I told you 10 years into our business, we bought the, the remnants of a company that had the 800 number in it. And I told you my dad was a painting contractor and he was a painting contractor because his dad was. And his father died very young, 40s, in his 40s. My father was just back from service, World War II, Navy. He was the oldest of three brothers. He was 21. And when his father died, 
And my grandmother, this is before Social Security and any safety net out there, she had to keep this business going to be able to feed her three boys and herself. And so she t- told my father, okay, you're in charge of the business. Now, read as she was really in charge, but you got this five foot tall Irish lady over there. She can't be going to the job sites and telling men what to do. So my father was quote unquote the boss until he grew into it. And I remember sitting at the boardroom table at the McCann painting, which was my grandmother's kitchen table, where she run the business out of a house and out of garages and storage facilities behind. And I remember sitting there and telling them the story about, oh, woe is me. I did this acquisition. I didn't know about all this debt I incurred. How am I going to dig out of this hole? And one of my uncles suggested, well, why don't you go to look into this bankruptcy thing? And my grandmother gave me the Irish finger. <laughs> She called me into the uh, next room in the uh, office complex, a dining room, <laughs> where we couldn't be seen. And she said to me, figure out another way. We don't do that. I said, but what do you mean? We, McCann's, don't do that. Figure out another way. And I, I remember if I'd gone another way, the story would be very, very different. But you just put your boots on, get moving, get moving forward, make it happen. By the way, for everyone who couldn't see Jim, the Irish fingers that the, the come here signal, which the, the I know. curl. I have an Irish husband, so I know precisely what you mean, Jim. Jim, first of all, thank you so much for being here today. This has been an absolute pleasure. You are, you are a force, um, and just even the like invigoration and energy I've gotten from sitting here. This has been amazing. Um, everybody out there, if you haven't already checked out or sent a bazillion things on 1-800-Flowers, please check out 1-800-Flowers.com. And you can join us next week for in- the Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. Jim, we are rooting for you. I will be watching what you do with AI. I'm very excited about that. Um, and just the most sincere thank you for, for joining us here today. Alexa, let's make it a date. 10 years from now, we reconnect again. It's a date, Jim. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Alexa. Deloitte understands that one size doesn't fit all. Each emerging growth company has its own unique needs and issues at different stages of growth. As your startup grows, Deloitte aligns its approach to adapt to that growth. Quality is their top priority. Their approach to client services focus on the priorities and challenges of high growth companies, the road to IPO, and a commitment to the venture capital community. From startup to IPO and beyond, Deloitte is here to help. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's Deloitte.com, D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E.com forward slash US forward slash EGC.